and welcome to the Modern Agilist. We're talking to Lou Martina. He's a senior project manager at UPMC Information Technology. He successfully plans and executes enterprise delivery strategies to manage complex projects across multiple platforms and business lines. Lou has over 25 years of agile project and program management experience. Lou is also a uh, GSD and PM. He gets stuff done. Um, he is an Ohio State University grad. Uh, Lou, I just want to forewarn you, you are talking to two uh, Penn State fans <laughs> on here. So uh, I also I also saw that in your bio that you're a Cincinnati Bengals fan, correct? That is correct on yeah. both points. And former member of the Ohio State University marching band. Got to get Very out. nice. Very nice. Well, quickly, I'll what, see you all later. <laughs> what, what instrument did you play? I was a baritone horn and instrument repair manager. Awesome. Oh, wow. Awesome. But it, cool. I, I just have to open with a quick, quick story here. I know that I'm taking a little detour, but I think, Lou, you'll, yeah. you'll appreciate this. I was younger, and I went to an Ohio State-Penn State game at the Horseshoe in Columbus, and it was with my dad. And uh, we were trying to just scalp tickets, you know, or buy tickets from scalpers, rather. Um, you know, that's just how we did things years ago. You know, we'd show up and hope that we could get tickets. Anyways, we got there and, you know, couldn't find any. They were really expensive. If we did find any, got to the gate, the guy's like, hey, listen, don't even buy any because there's a lot of counterfeits going around. So we were kind of bummed out because we drove the way to Ohio State to go see the game and we couldn't even get in. Bad planning, <laughs> bad planning. Uh, so we were walking around the stadium and all of a sudden somebody must have realized we were Penn State fans and goes, Psst, and it was a Penn State cheerleader who had opened a door on the side of the stadium and realized we were Penn State fans, invited us in, walked us past the blue man who was sitting there right, right before halftime, sat us at the 50-yard line in front of the Ohio State band. Wow. And it was awesome. They are a great band. So it was well, a fun time. I'm, I'm glad you had a good experience. And likewise, one of the best athletic events I've ever attended was a whiteout in 2015. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. A fantastic experience. Fortunately, we were on the plus side of the scoreboard after overtime, but <laughs> it was a great experience. So I'm, I'm glad both of us had good experiences in our respective uh, away game stadiums. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Yeah, cool stuff. Well, Lou, you, you have over 25 years of Agile uh, experience. Um, who or what got you into Agile? When did it all start for you? Or for you. Okay. Um, yeah, the, the 25 years started off in predominantly uh, financial services, banking acquisition, project management. And it was later on when Agile started to become a common sense delivery of how to get projects done. Because we experienced, especially in my government projects, when I was working for a, a defense utility or a defense concern, the requirements that we were working on were waterfall or predictive and they had started gathering those requirements in 2009 it was 2011 and we're still trying to develop based upon requirements that were two years old um, the agile delivery became a logical process in my development because it made sense how to get stuff done quickly how to give something to the customer faster it didn't have to be perfect. And that was the thing that it was hard for us to, or hard for me to accept that my initial release did not have to be perfect. It needed to be functional. It needed to solve some level of problems, but it didn't have to do everything out of the gate. 
So we were able to give value much faster and it allowed us to be adaptive to what the needs were both in the organization and in the economy or in the case of my defense work, what the government mandates and uh, compliance restrictions were at the time. So Agile made me more effective by allowing me to be imperfect, but to be constant of of what it is I was trying to accomplish and what the customer wanted in order to succeed, whether it was, again, a competitive differentiator or if it was a compliance requirement. Um, Agile probably is is because of agile development that I am still working in my uh, advanced career. <laughs> you know, Lou, it, it's interesting. Um, usually, uh, I will say this, you're a rare breed because usually when people talk about ah, what waterfall is, they're, they're reading about waterfall from a book or they're saying, ah, oh, that was uh, many months of requirements gathering and then many months of developing and then many months of testing. You actually live through the era of, hey, that was two years back when this thing started and have come all the way through this whole thing and, um, and, and are really at the what I think is the bleeding edge of where this is going as far as the feedback loop going from multiple years feedback loop to the smallest imaginable imaginable feedback loop that that one can imagine. Um, just to give people a little idea of context here, um, how we came to know you was our, the organization that we're a part of had an agile day. It was all day cross department thought leaders and speakers coming together to to share their insights and their knowledge and um you came and gave a talk called project managers as citizen developers um now when it came down to us thinking hey could we follow up with any of these speakers and kind of interview them and got, dive a little deeper into their talks what stuck out to us so strongly was one uh, we're fascinated with the low code, no code movement. Okay. Mm -hmm. And, and, um, and then also this term citizen developers, could you maybe speak to, you know, what is that citizen developers and maybe give a short, uh, you know, description of what is this low code, no code movement? Okay. Um, the first time I saw or read the term that quantified what it is that I was doing for a while was this summer when we were reviewing uh, within the local chapter of the Pittsburgh, I'm sorry, of the Project Management Institute. I'm a vice president of membership within that chapter. And we were reviewing with the chapter the new levels of credentials and certifications that had been released as part of PMBOK Project Management Body of Knowledge, 7th edition. And one of these was a term called citizen developer. And when I was reading it, I kind of chuckled because it was like, well, that's what I've been trying to do for a long time. I've been trying, and a citizen developer is, you are not a formally educated, you didn't graduate in an IT degree, you didn't come out of a master's of information science, you're not an MBA with a developer background. It was somebody who perceived a need and tried to fill it using the low code, no code tools that are now more readily available than they've, they've ever been in, in terms of my career. And that appealed to me as a problem solver. Uh, by education, I have a math and science background. So there's that scientific method of finding a problem and then trying to find what the sources of that problem were or what are the possible solutions to this problem 
without being biased in any particular direction. And right now the biases that we run into as project managers are organizational bias because many times you'll hear the, that's not how we do it here syndrome, uh, or you run into a case where you know of tools and processes that are out there available, but because the organization has not been exposed to that, you feel like you are on an island all by yourself. And as a citizen developer, as somebody who is not formally trained in development, but understands business process, that's where I believe every project manager, every business analyst, a subject matter expert, anyone who is experiencing problems on a day-to-day basis can quantify those problems and solve it using some very easy point-and-click UI tools that are on the market. We were exposed to one. I'm not allowed to say any product names because of the safe harbor test that I had to pass in order to be on this call today. Mm-hmm. But there are tools that are there and you can research them and find out how easy it is to create a business process map, for instance. And that was the avenue that we were looking to streamline a business process. As a citizen developer, you have not only the the power, but the responsibility to solve this problem because Coders are not coming to your rescue. There are too many problems, too many needs, and not enough developers. If it, if you wait for somebody in a PMO to prioritize your project to the level that it's going to get assigned three developers, two business analysts, uh, and a, a, a systems analyst, and a DBA, if you're going to tie up all of those technical resources, and I'm just going to use round numbers in terms of salary, um, I won't even say what the salaries are, but that number times whatever your going level is, and be honest, six people over a half a million dollars for a one-year project, it, it behooves you and your client to try to solve this on your own using the tools that are available. You understand the problem. It's presented to you on a daily basis, especially if you are a subject matter expert in a business area or a line of business or if you're in a hospital on the care side, things that you're running into on a daily basis that you know that if if I had this th- and that, I could solve this problem. And the role or the term citizen developer empowered me to go out and find tools that I could get rid of spreadsheets, I could get rid of extracts, and I could create something that's handheld on someone's phone that they get a real-time display of, in my case, where are the servers that need to migrate from a test environment in a brownfield and how those servers need to be ordered through something that we now call software-defined data center, which Mm was um, a product of the citizen developer process, how users can order a server, have it created automatically, have it um, authenticated, and ready for development. And then you get to see this process on your phone, how fast this is. It used to be tickets that would get generated through some sort of internal management services process. A ticket would get generated and then it would go to somebody else who'd have to print that ticket and then go in and circle which pieces of this particular server need to be built, what the operating system, the CPU and the memory and all that goes into building. At that time, it was a bare metal. It was a physical server that had to be picked up and installed into the data center. Now they're virtual, but 
the the process has automated. So the orchestration and verification and validation and authentication of this particular virtual tool is now created and authenticated and accessed through your handheld device. So where I was trying to go in a, a quick summary is that the term citizen developer just basically empowered me to go out, find a problem and fix it. Mm -hmm. I have a question, you know, along those lines. So, you know, as a citizen developer within an organization, you know, what has been your experience or maybe the way that you've gone about kind of uh, championing and uh, promoting and, and getting some buy-in and adoption of the, you know, new processes and the, you know, the accompanying uh, tools that you, you know, you kind of alluded to. What, what is... How do you go about kind of getting that buy-in? What what has been your experience with that? Uh, okay, can I quantify that that question with another question, please? Sure. Um, how much of the initial? Are, where are where am I in the delivery of that solution? Based on your question, is it? Yeah, let's say you know you've kind of come up with it, you know a new process and maybe identified a tool or two that you want to use for whatever. Oh, and okay. And full greenfield. Yeah, full green. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Uh, greenfield in in our in our terminology, greenfield is uh, new production with the highest level of sophistication within our network segmentation. It's the most secure, and it is where uh, new development has been instructed to occur. Um, so we had the brownfield, which represented old technology, old network segmentation, old orchestration engine rules. And now greenfield is where everybody wants to be. Mm -hmm. And so how we were able to get there, it was rewarding that old paradigm, ask for forgiveness versus permission. I the, love it. <laughs> the citizen developer now only has to ask for forgiveness because there's nothing stopping him, her, or them going out and using the tools that are available. We are a Microsoft shop. So everything that Microsoft has either developed or acquired mm -hmm. um, and most of app, most of the app, Microsoft apps are a combination of both, especially in the world that we live in. So I have a, there's a, um, a technical delivery channel of Microsoft tools. And then there's the office 365 Microsoft tools. Mm -hmm. uh, most of the tools that we're using to solve business problems are on the, in the center of that picture or leaning towards the, the technical delivery side. And the tool sets are, they are, and, and in my world, it's bounded by applications such as the power apps, power automate, power BI, uh, and if you didn't have access to Power BI, you're using Power Queries and combining that functionality with data that we are manipulating, massaging in something called Azure DevOps or Azure GitHub. So mm -hmm. these are code and process and object development library tools that allow us then to go out and in terms of agile methodology and agile DevOps, you have a agile template that I can create my project as the, um, the epic, the feature, the stories, and then task plans and test plans. 
um, at that level. So I've got my own little code library tool going on. Back in the day, we used something called PVCS Tracker. And this is very similar to that methodology where you've got objects. And then if you have the GitHub pieces, your developers are actually running code and you're automating tests on that code from the time that they they submit it to the library for peer evaluation, peer mm -hmm. reviews. So mm -hmm. peer reviews are no longer a, a big formal process that you have to schedule a conference room and everybody walks in and watches a monitor on the screen as somebody is running through code. And this ties back to the concept of mob programming. A, a couple of years ago, mob programming was this you know, you use the confetti sign of putting your fingers to your forehead and go where your head explodes. Oh, wow. To think that we have the developer in the same room with the systems engineer and the DBA and the business analyst and the customer. Wow. So COVID hit and now everybody's using Teams. And guess what? We're all mob developers now because we had to be. Um, so that that concept and the things how we adapted so quickly, which is probably one of the reasons why the concept of mob programming clicked for many folks a year and a half, two years ago, or at least uh, let's say sometime before March of 2020. That was that was the strange concept where to think that we didn't have to be within our own teams, and I didn't have to have project managers and business analysts sitting with a customer going through a, a day of requirements gathering and then coming back and sitting with the systems engineers and developers and running through, guess what? We can get everybody on a call at the same time and we can do it multiple times a day. And it's not just a stand up within our own teams. We're standing up with everybody involved in the development process. The citizen coder, citizen developer is working on a smaller scale. You might even be working by yourself or you're, you're validating. If, if it's a problem that you're solving yourself, the audience is going to be very quickly. The, the problem that you run into is you need a separate set of eyes for that arm's length validation to make sure that what you've analyzed and what you've developed and what you're proposing is real. So that's where a lot of the code starts as a small group development team is a, uh, you can use it as a prototype or a conference room pilot. Those are something that are dynamic. And if it catches on and the organization sees that this is a possible need that multiple teams need, then you're going to find it's going to go through that formal ideation. It'll go through, it goes from an idea to a, a prospect then when it's approved, it becomes a project and the project is funded. And then maybe mm -hmm. you lose control of that of that thing that you gave birth to and it becomes somebody else's. But just to watch it grow and develop as it goes from one idea to another. Mm -hmm. um, a long time ago, I was part of a, a financial services concern in Pittsburgh. We were at a business conference in Atlanta and we were walking around just looking at other vendors and what their tools. And there's this there was this booth and the individual was there by himself and he didn't have good he didn't have good stuff on his table to give away. You know, the <laughs> the bags full of conference junk that we all come home with. Yeah. He had like a pen, you know, but what his tool was doing was putting data on ACH files. So he was basically 
it was 100 and 144 characters. Mm-hmm. So it was like the Twitter of data at the time. This is mm-hmm. before Twitter. And my colleague and I, we were looking at, he's taking this ACH file and he's putting, he's putting just segmented data and he's parsing it out. And look how he's putting these header. You know what we could do? And then what, what that idea became, my, uh, my colleague, a gentleman named John, uh, John and I, we came back and we proposed this as a way of sweeping money out of jumbo accounts and creating this overnight sweep using this, this data transfer that was already secure. Mm-hmm. So we would take this, we'd take all these mom and pop, and I say mom and pop, they were medium-sized banks of many millions of dollars, but they would sweep the accounts, put this money in an overnight jumbo where everybody earned one night's worth of interest on the yield spread. And mm-hmm. then we'd go back into your checking account 6 a.m. the next morning. And this organization was able to generate a large number of dollars of assets under management. And it just came from, hmm, I wonder what, or hmm, how is this done? So those questions that citizen developers or anybody empowered with solving problems, they're asking you know, the three or four W's and the uh, final H is how, you know, the last question is, all right, how are we going to do this? But mm-hmm. the, the who, what, when, where, and why, those are important questions that you are required to ask and answer. And you'll see that in some of the, the, the um, educational materials that are out there. Various organizations right now are having credentialing and certification processes and giving you information out on the net. But, you know, you have to do some of the basic business analyst functionality and the Q&A part of any project that still has to get done if it's going to be something viable or larger than what your current world is. It might, it may, may not, it may not expand be beyond you and your team or you and your group, but it might be become something that's organizational and could change the fabric. Mm-hmm. This tool was around as a viable product in this tools arsenal for, for 19 years. It was finally retired. It was a tool called cash connection and okay. it had a life and it had a good life, but it started off as, Two guys walking around looking for free stuff at a conference. <laughs> That's awesome. Lou, Lou, Lou I wanted to, um, what you were talking about, uh, mentioning earlier, I want to put some concrete numbers on that. And this is coming from your own slide deck that you presented uh, earlier this week. Um, three three facts here. Um, 86% of IT decision makers say the biggest challenge to digital transform their business is a shortage of software developers, 86%. And then the second um, number is that you contrasted a computer science job, which is nearly 1.5 million, with computer science graduates, which is 400,000. Okay. And then an estimate of a US deficit of software developers by 2024 to be at a negative uh, 500,000, right? Um, so there's a tremendous need um, as, as illustrated by those numbers. And so my, my question is, is, you know, it's, I feel the extreme connection between agile and this movement, this low code, no code movement. One has already mentioned that the shortest feedback loop imaginable, but also in its user centeredness where, you know, it's not as though engineers and development teams disappear, but 
maybe their focus begins to shift into making tools that enable users to make features rather than them having to be the, the feature factories, you know? Um, do you think other people are picking up on this connection or do you think this is a well-known thing or it's just too early? What do you think? Have people woke, woken up to this yet? I, I, I think what, what the, the service that you and your your team and your organization is providing is critical in answering that that question. You are going to be the evangelists of this medium and this process and this this motivation to go out and solve a problem. So it's starting off now, but I believe it's going to be a groundswell of of common sense movement towards finding and fixing problems that folks just don't have the time to wait in order for somebody else to make that decision or you know that old party game of you're in a circle and you tell one person one thing and it goes around and you try to figure out what that answer is when it comes back to you uh, sometimes it's drastically different and i'm also drawn to that old cartoon where here's what the customer once and here's how it was described and here's how it was defined and here's how it was built and it was used in the reference of a tire swing this eliminates all those variations of the bad tire swing um, and so that uh, the customer is able to be closer to the definition the design the development and delivery of that particular tool that solves one or more needs and your group is going to be critical in getting the word out to folks that it doesn't take a master's degree. It doesn't take rocket science anymore. It's a matter of knowing your business process and then in the tools that were made available to us, going in, finding the right object to drag into your business process map and the code behind it has already been generated by the time you, you click enter. So I think you guys are, are the prospectors that are about to find a huge gold mine in terms of functionality and clients and people who are going to come to your door saying, how can I do this and how can I do it more effectively? That's awesome. Thank you for saying that, Lou. I hope so. We, we like gold mines too. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, um, this, this thing, this low code, no code movement, I feel like came from just a, a distant interest into fully coming into my whole mental sphere last year when a uh, a machine learning thought leader that I followed, um, he, as a research project, put out an open source library that uh, created basically using stuff like GPT-3, language models and stuff, what was out there that is open source and he made a text summarization and automatic quiz generation uh, project right and then you know a year went by and he basically built a business and launched it using bubble which is one of the well-known low code right. no code and he literally built something with bubble connected it to that open source library which you know and and that's the business he basically wired things together and when i've seen what's happened to his business over the past year i'm 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 shocked and i'm in awe and i'm like man this is awesome um and um recently um uh, you know i'm i'm pretty involved and interested in uh decentralized autonomous organizations DAOs, which is a whole nother show right but my uh my 
brother was telling me recently, he says, listen, I need to, I, I, I'm not a software engineer. I need to go to a boot camp. He's feeling very frustrated that he's behind in life, you know, and all this. I said, listen, man, you're already a subject matter expert. That's the rarity. Focus on the tooling and the piping between that tooling and, and with tools similar to what we're talking about here, this will be the greatest value add here. The ability to communicate, to know, and then use the tooling. And it's a lot of what some philosophers talk about what will happen as far as how um, leadership aligns with machine learning and the technological singularity where, you know, there's going to be no machine uprising, but what will happen is as individuals become so insanely empowered by their tool sets that their ability to influence change and, and their, you know, efficacy and productivity will be so magnified that they'll be the, the superpowers, the, the, that tooling, you know. And those folks who are able to harness that, that internal vision are the ones that are going to be driving the development and all the other enhancements coming in the next wave of whatever that future wave of technology is going to be. It's going to be from the folks who actually understand how things work and were able to create their own prototypes. Um, so yes, I think your, your brother is going to do fine. You know, this, I got, I got a trick question. I want to throw your way. Is this something new or are we just at a tipping point? I think Justice, you you used in our kind of scribble scratch. You used the wixification. Is it the wix? <laughs> I used yeah. the the wixification of app application development. I I think I think this is a frustration that has bubbled over for a long time, where the users could not understand why is it taking so long to do something that I, I mean, and most folks will use the sharpened knife in the drawers uh, analogy where a lot of us aren't the sharpest knives in the drawer, but we, we know how to use that knife. And the same thing is true for the users and the user managers and the customers of certain companies or certain product sets. And they wonder how come it doesn't do X, Y, or Z. I know how I would do it if I could. These tools now make it available for you to complete that sentence where here's how I'm going to solve this problem. And it doesn't take a master's degree in order to do it. Um, I hope that that puts some sort of fear in those institutions who are entrenched with this is how we do our development. It's you, you, Mr. Customer, Ms. Customer, you are not qualified to do this. You don't understand the complexities. I think this takes that that mythology out of that equation. It empowers the user. They know their problem. This gives them a way to solve that problem. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure. You know, we we touched on this, but this this term, the citizen developer, is this term? Is this something it, that originated with PMI? And is there a uh, like a certification hierarchy that they've put in place? No, it, it did not originate. That's a really good question. And I'll follow up and text you an answer if you guys have, aren't Googling it already right now. Um, no, it did not originate with PMI, but PMI, as it's done with its other certifications, it sees a need to provide an avenue of normalization. When when And we'll start back with the very first certification that Project Management Institute came up with, and that was the project management professional, the PMP. 
-hmm. anyone who has, and I'll, I'll start with that one, but it's, the, the, the generation of certifications that are coming up now are different because they had to be. The PMP was very structured, remains very structured, and in some cases is the foundation of anyone's formal education of project management. It's a way of baselining a level of understanding and competence so that when somebody comes, uh, comes to me as a potential employee and they reference on their CV or resume that they have their project management professional certification. They have a PMP. Well, two things immediately happen. One, I, I go online to the PMI.org. I go into the credential database. I ask for confirmation of their name and city, and I see instantly, are they a PMP? And <laughs> they better be on that system or the interview's over. Mm -hmm. If they are in the system, I kind of just take a, uh, I can lean back and now my, my, my levels of questioning, they are on a different level. They're on a higher tier because I know what this person has been through. I know what they've studied. I know the amount of, of time that they have spent in the field in official measurable projects, irrespective of their role. I know that they've spent 4,400 hours in verifiable project work. And what it doesn't matter what the project were, it's just the fact that they had documentation of at least, you know, most of us don't work on a project eight hours a day, 52 weeks a year. But that tells me, it's like, you know, you're from the same organization, you know, those of us who've gone through the same sort of schooling or our social or professional organizations, you know, it's like the PMP is a secret handshake that's not a secret because 1.1 million people right now currently have a valid PMP credential. So that's telling me that the world is catching on to the importance of project management. Now let's go to the next level. There's only 41,000 uh, agile certified practitioners. I'll pause for effect. 1.1 million PMPs, 41,000 ACPs. Mm-hmm. Okay, and now there's this this new generation of credentialing coming out, the Agile Hybrid, and this is just with PMI. Mm -hmm. um, Scrum has its the Scrum uh, Scrum Alliance; they have their own. Safe has their own. Um, that's probably the top three that I, I can re focus on right now, or at least have some competency talking about. So these organizations have their own credentialing certification process, but the point is that it allows us, just like when you graduate with a degree, there's an understanding that you went through a certain level of education, that you acquired this knowledge in these certain areas, whether it's math, science, liberal arts, um, engineering, whatever those, whatever the degree says, then you have to assume that that person coming out of that organization has the skills that you're looking for to fill the need that you have in your organization. These certifications do the very same thing. Uh, Agile hybrid, you know, that's, that's learning to live with the similarities and differences of waterfall predictive methodology versus the agile methodology. Uh, you have the, um, is it the, 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 the disciplined agile scrum master 
and the disciplined agile senior scrum master and the citizen developer. Those are the four new credentials coming out of PMI.org. They see a need for the standardization and normalization of the, of the process and methodology and how to implement this and what to look for if you are actually looking to hire these types of folks. You know, this gives you an idea as to what they know, how they acquired this knowledge, and how they've been empowered to implement this knowledge to solve problems. And to me, that that says that says volumes. Somebody shows up with a credential, I know what they know. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me ask you this too. You talk just speaking of empowerment, but uh, aside from you know credentials and stuff like that, but within an organization, what are some things that um, you know you've seen or can can suggest? that uh, can empower people within the organization to kind of take on the role of a citizen developer or, you know, just kind of have the uh, uh, the latitude or the feeling that they can kind of dive into this low-code environment. What are some things that organizations can do to kind of promote that? They can, they can encourage this by uh, eliminating or lowering some of the barriers to these opportunities. Um, a, a very, and I I can't I can't envision a a company with very structured organizational hierarchy is going to be able to survive in a future or a culture where free thinking is not only encouraged but required. Mm-hmm. So that in order for me to stay competitive, I have to know that I've in, empowered my teams to be as free thinking as possible so that if they see uh, uh, if they if they see a process that can be automated then they're going to do it yeah. and a, a lot of the area that I live in are more the more senior technical folks so if they're dealing with users who can quantify how they would solve a problem whether or not they they actually solve a problem with code but if they come to me with their 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 let's say a, a, an idea for a, for a product. If those users have been schooled or at least have been exposed to the concepts of citizen developer, they understand the process that solves that problem. And they may not have built the tool, but when they give me their requirements, those requirements are going to be much tighter mm-hmm. and much more, realistic in terms of what they want versus what they actually need, they're going to get rid of some of that gold plating because they know how they would, you know, they can visualize how this, this process or product or tool should work. And I believe that even if, even at the, the business owner level, if they're not solving the problem with code, then they're learning how to write better requirements for those that will solve the problem with code. So I think it's going to eventually shorten the window of getting uh, actionable, profitable products to market because it's going to help our users understand and appreciate the process. Um, you know, in, in the civilian world, there are clubs that are designed for the members to become better, faster, smarter about what it is that they have an interest in. And then when they go to watch the professionals, now they've got a deeper understanding of what they're doing. Right. Um, I think maybe the same might be applied towards defining your requirements as a customer 
if, if you know how to how you would build this product, it's going to help you define those requirements so that others can build it for you better, faster. That's awesome. I mean, one of the things, too, that I've always been interested in, um, you know, just kind of kind of studying how other places do things is um, baking in that kind of time too, as as part of a role or as part of a job requirement to sharpen that tool set and to allow that free thinking. Um, I think that, you know, like you said, allowing people to do that, to kind of, you know, promote that and to kind of say, hey, as part of what we expect from you or as a team member here, uh, we expect that, you know, you'll be diving in, taking the initiative or learning things and sharpen your tool set. And then that will ultimately yield some some uh, some better requirements and better understanding the the SMEs that Justice talked about earlier. Um, you know, I just think that uh, what you're saying makes a lot of sense to me. And I think that uh, one of the things too that I've observed that I've I've liked is people that say, "Hey, we want this out of you." So. Uh, this is part of the job, you know, is not just doing your job, but also trying to figure out a better way of doing things. too. And uh, uh, precisely, Rick, because now I see it as a, a bonding or a trust building process mm. between customer and technology. The the fact that I am a customer and I was I was I was asked by the tech guys, what do you think? How would you do this? Mm -hmm. uh, how about this, you know, where I'm part of the process. I'm not just somebody who made an order and is waiting for that order to be delivered. Mm -hmm. I'm actually part of its creation and delivery. So they're making me more engaged. And because of that, I understand what they are doing. And maybe I'm going to be more appreciative and more respectful of the time that it takes for them to actually deliver that product to me. So I'm hoping that that helps become a team building across different organizations or across different departments within the organization. Awesome. So, so Lou, I, I feel like we are fully living up to our namesake from the standpoint of this being the modern agilist show. Um, you know, it, it feels like we're describing something that is, you know, almost seen as like the great convergence as machines become more human-like in their ability to, uh, communicate and 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 and, and uh, easily interface with, and and then humans become more like machines, and our ability to be very precise and to think in terms of APIs and what. So this great convergence is coming mm -hmm. together. Um, how does an agilist go from here to there? So let's say someone's a, a, a project manager, agile coach, scrum master. How do they go from what people traditionally think of it in terms of what that job is to citizen developer? I would say, you know, just in my own path, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about how I got there and then hope that folks can build on that as far as have an interest. And then there are there are good tools that are available out there for your own personal development environment so that you can get a free version of these tools and it'll allow you to import flat files of some sort of data and just watch what these tools can do based upon the data that you supply and it's it's really very user friendly so i would start there go online pick out a tool click and drag on a few of these freebies and then start to get familiar with the processes and then try to learn that process by going in and perhaps 
reading up, or in my case, I went online, I found out who was authoring certifications for this role of citizen developer. In my case, it was PMI. Uh, there are others out there. And take that course, take it seriously. And now you've, you've got this key that's going to help you unlock a few more doors that were unavailable to you. It's like in anything else, you know, from my role as a project manager, we've been solving problems and the customer came to you with a problem. So it was based on, can you do X, Y, and Z? So it was like, can you solve this one problem? And after you delivered that final product, you've enabled the customer to ask three or four more questions that they couldn't ask before because they couldn't get through that first door. This is going to help them realize that they can envision a solution to anything that's that's a problem. Anything that needs to be simplified or automated, I hope that this empowers individuals, not only as workers, but as people in their home life, that they can improve the quality of life either at work or at home. And all it takes is asking a few few questions. That's good. I like that you started on something as fundamental as courage and curiosity. You know, um, there's, there's no recipe that doesn't start with that, right? Um, so we're, we're coming up on the, on the close of the hour, uh, Lou, you know, there are people who are hearing this, they want to know more about you. They want to see anything you've written, maybe have you speak somewhere, uh, consult them on some tools and next steps they may want to take. Is there uh, any way uh, for people to reach out and, and go deeper with Lou? Yes. Lou considers himself a beggar telling other beggars where to find bread. So if you want to find bread, you can reach me at VP, that's Victor Paul underscore membership at PMI.org. I'm sorry, at Pittsburgh PMI.org. The, the more direct way would be LouMartina13 at gmail.com or go on LinkedIn and uh, hit me up and I'll be glad to respond there. So let's, let me backtrack. LouMartina13 at gmail.com or LinkedIn. And I believe it's Louis Martina. If you're listening in and you're driving at the moment or uh, you can't write that down, don't worry. We'll share a link and all the other information and material that, that Louis mentioned. So no worries there. So you can find that uh, at modernagilist.net on our, on our website. And just click on this podcast link and all that link information will be listed below. Michael, Justice, Rick, thank you for giving me a forum to share my excitement for this role. Oh, this, this has been great. I, we can't thank you enough. So yeah, thank you. I mean, it's been enlightening. Thanks again for listening to another episode of the Modern Agilist podcast, where we examine and discuss all things related to agile and large scale software delivery. You can find the latest podcast episodes and our latest blog posts on our website, themodernagilist.net. You can also find our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. And if you enjoyed listening to our content, please subscribe.